You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring, unless you have a teeny tiny little span of attention. Hey, some people do. They like those dog Vimeos over and over again, bumping up <laughs> those the same Those are cute. Those are cute. Not substantive. <laughs> All right, but during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. Today we begin our podcast series, uh, Private National Security Law, with a survey on private national security, a growing area of practice that, like kudzu and irrational social media posts, will keep on growing. To take us through the ins and outs of national security law, our guest today is going to be Mr. Raj Day, an attorney with the firm of Mayor Brown. Raj, it is awesome to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, and thank you for having me as a kickoff guest for this series. It's a lot of pressure, but I'll try to come through. And you're worthy of it. Raj, let me give our listeners a little background on you. Your bio is, uh, let's say, impressive, uh, and I'm just going to hit on some of the highlights. You graduated from Harvard College, I've heard of that, and Harvard Law School. Then you clerked for the Ninth Circuit. Which judge? Judge Tashima. Wow. So we in Pasadena? I was in beautiful Pasadena, California. Lovely. Right around the corner from where I used to live on Orange Grove. All right. You were in leadership at the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy. There, you rendered advice to the executive branch on national security matters during some of the most uh, tumultuous and interesting times in our history, quite frankly. You've also served as staff secretary to the White House. That's not the guy who takes notes, right? That's part of the job duties, but not all of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And you were deputy assistant to the president of the United States. Gosh. All right. Everybody breathing uh, who's listening to this. You were also counsel to the 9-11 Commission. Uh, You were counsel to the special bipartisan staff of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. Back in those bipartisan salad days, remember that? 
Uh, and you helped write the legislation that established the National Counterterrorism Center. Now, on Sunday, you rested. Thank you for that intro. It sounds like my parents may have written that for you, but I appreciate that. <laughs> Definitely play this for them. Actually, I did not. I did not. Hey, on Sunday, I made cheese. I just want to share that. Time well spent. The perspective that we're going to take to kick off the podcast series is going to be a little different. Well, most people think like obvious national security areas are Department of State, Department of Justice, but we'd like to focus a little bit on private national security law. But it sounds a bit like an oxymoron. What kind of practice do you do in private national security law? Well, it can be a lot broader than most people would expect, I think, than they would think off the top of their head. Um, and it's a growing area. And the issues arise because companies are doing business across borders, because the government is increasingly touching broader swaths of the economy, the national security part of the government, and because more and more products implicate national security equities at one level or, or another. So let me walk through at least a handful of areas where national security issues come up and where I think some of your future guests will speak to, because it, frankly, it's a, a wide array of areas. So first, and probably most obvious to most of your listeners, government contracts. Many government contracts involve equities of the Defense Department or the intelligence community. They may or may not be classified. And even if they're not classified, they could involve a range of national security issues and interests at stake. Second, and probably second obvious, uh, cybersecurity, an area of focus of mine, whether it's increasing nation-state attacks on private companies or theft that may go across borders. National security equities are arising all the time in the cyber uh, area. Third, export controls. It's another space where increasingly technology issues are coming to play, whether it's transfers of software or encryption technology. These are raising increasingly complex issues in an export control regime that isn't quite as adept at moving as, as fast as the technology. Foreign investment. Uh, everybody's heard of CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which comes into play when foreign entities acquire a stake in a U.S. entity that has a national security role. That's a very gross way of describing it. But the point is when the U.S. government has an interest in a particular business or enterprise in the U.S. and there's going to be a foreign stake, foreign interest ownership, there's a process to evaluate whether that should continue. And increasingly, we're seeing that touch technology as well. Semiconductors are an industry in which CFIUS issues are coming to the fore, now, for example. Um, sanctions. Another obvious area where national security issues are at stake. Then this is a particularly dynamic area, whether we're talking about uh, the change in the sanctions regime with respect to Iran, for example, or with respect to Cuba. And as you can imagine, that would implicate a host of interests for lots of different companies. If you're a hotel company trying to set up the first hotel in Havana, that may involve advice on the changing nature of the sanctions regime with respect to Cuba, for instance. Litigation. There's a whole range of litigation that involves national security interests, not the least of which are foreign sovereign immunity issues, and there's an entire legal structure around those sorts of cases. Investigations. We manage a number of investigations for clients that may be inspector general investigations out of parts of the Defense Department or the intelligence community. It may entail legal process that one of our clients has received in the context of a government investigation, so think of a FISA order or a a warrant, or it could involve an internal investigation for one of our clients that may not involve national security equities, but resembles the sort of investigations that happen in the government. Think of an insider threat investigation. You're a big corporation, you have uh, some of your IP is going out the door, you need to figure out how that's happening or set up a program to ensure that it doesn't happen. That resembles the sort of thing we dealt with at the NSA with Edward Snowden, for example. And IP is intellectual property. Intellectual property, exactly. 
And then lastly, uh, an area that most people don't think of, but is becoming an increasing part of our firm's practice at Mayor Brown, immigration. Uh, immigration issues are increasingly raising national security issues with respect to companies that are looking to move their workforce around the world. And people are moving faster than the regimes allow them to, yet we need to do proper vetting, of course, and we would all hope employees of companies are getting vetted when they move around the world. So that's just a sample of the array of issues in private practice that could involve national security issues. Wow, that's a lot. So um, the theme that I'm getting from this is that it is growing. Is that correct? For sure. Uh, absolutely. And I think there are a few systemic reasons why that's happening. First is that the national security apparatus of the U.S. government is growing. Growing faster, of course, post 9-11. And what that means is more parts of the U.S. government are touching more parts of the private sector in ways that implicate national security interests. So that's one big factor. Two, companies are, of course, becoming increasingly global, which means there are issues that arise when they are dealing with foreign governments, issues of cross-border transfers of data and people, etc. And third, security issues are increasingly intertwined with other areas of law, whether it's trade issues, so think about trade negotiations on something like the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and what are some of the issues that arise on digital commerce, may involve national security issues, for instance, or uh, technology issues. I mean, we're all hearing about social media companies and the intersection with national security. So increasingly, other areas of law that seem distinct from national security may have a national security component. So would it be fair to say that having some government experience could be useful before you enter private practice? Uh, yes, well, I'm biased, so I think my answer is definitely <laughs> going to be yes. But I do have some reasons to back that up. Um, first is visibility. So for those who have worked in government, it can be a very insular thing, and particularly the national security world. So having some visibility into how, how it works is very helpful. Second, credibility, both with clients who want to understand that you know how decisions have made in the government, and credibility with government officials who appreciate that you have sat in that chair before and know what they're thinking about and what equities they need to protect on behalf of all of us. So you have some credibility in that regard. And appreciation for the stakeholders involved in any given issue. You know, if you sat through a deputies committee meeting on the National Security Council or any other interagency process, one, it can be grinding and <laughs> brutal, but two, you have a pretty good sense of what are the key nodes for decisions being made, which may not be obvious from the outside, frankly. Um, and then lastly, probably an appreciation of expectations on the government side. Some of it's law, some of it's policy, and some of it's just the unwritten traditions of how national security issues have been handled. Uh, and there may be legal sources that aren't even publicly accessible. And if the person appreciates that you have some sense of that, I think that facilitates uh, work with private clients. And that helps you manage your clients' expectations, too, because in corporate America, things can turn around very quickly, whereas sometimes with interagency, <laughs> government, so many boxes to check, so much deconfliction to undertake. So Definitely. Something as simple as explaining to a corporate client why an MOU and a memorandum of understanding has to go to five divisions of a given department uh, and what that entails and why it takes so long is helpful. So what sort of clients do you work with out in the wild? So lucky for me, it's a wide array, which means it's a broad client base that we have and that national security practices generally have. But it can be every type of entity from defense companies, which we'd all expect, to social media companies, uh, helping them on a variety of fronts think through issues that we all read about in the paper, like encryption, to helping them prevent their platforms 
uh, from being abused by terrorists and others. They don't want that any more than the government, but thinking through how to do that. To startup tech companies who are thinking about new products and services, particularly when it comes to cyber, that may push the boundaries of the existing legal regime and help them think through the risks involved with developing the products they are developing. Critical infrastructure companies, um, which is a whole range of things from energy companies to communications companies who may be standard critical infrastructure or maybe what we call core critical infrastructure companies that have may or have been designated as so-called Section 9 entities, which is a designation under a particular executive order for entities that may have potential for catastrophic risk and the issues they think through in interacting with the government. Financial services entities, not surprising, they've forever dealt with AML issues, anti-money laundering, but that takes increasing significance in a world where terrorists and other adversaries are using financial systems as well as traditional criminal types. And then, of course, cyber issues, which have clients across the spectrum, retail clients, financial clients, manufacturing clients, increasingly thinking about the security of industrial control systems, so honestly, it is just about any company out there probably has some issue that involves a national security angle. The real question is, have they figured that out? And do you often work with clients who are just facing one of those issues, or is it more likely that they'll be looking at two or more different fronts at the same time? You know, it really varies. So sometimes you get a call from a client and they have an issue that involves some part of the national security world and they don't know what to do. That's the sort of client who isn't, dealing, who isn't a repeat player. Uh, and so that is a different sort of counseling endeavor than working, for example, for a Fortune 50 company in a critical infrastructure space that has dealt with uh, the Defense Department and the Department of Homeland Security year after year and maybe looking for more sophisticated advice on trends in the space or a particular issue that's come up, investigation, whatever. There are some companies that are very sophisticated and have in-house legal talent on these topics but may need outside help to supplement in given situations. But there are also companies that don't know where to turn because these issues are new to them and they're new to this world. All right. So um, I think we sort of briefly touched on this, but it does seem right now that we're in a sort of business model revolution, if you will. Companies are using co-work spaces to launch startup ideas. Things are coming out of people's basements. They're not occupying an enormous facility or compound, if you will, somewhere out in, in Tyson's Corner, which is a a suburb of Washington, D.C. Um, what is the difference and what different approach should people consider in approaching these different kinds of clients, kind of in a broader sense? Certainly. Well, there's a range of things, and it, it varies, of course. It's hard to generalize, but I think there's a few general ways to think about, particularly as a sort of new lawyer in the space, how to advise clients differently or at least assess your clients, listen to your clients so that you appreciate where they are on the spectrum of a range of things, like risk tolerance. A Fortune 50 company with 100,000 employees who is one of these repeat players with the national security community has one risk tolerance. A startup uh, with two guys in a basement <laughs> somewhere in Palo Alto has a different risk tolerance. And a startup with two guys in a basement in Palo Alto who just left the CIA to start a cyber company has a different risk tolerance and a different appreciation of what they're doing. So one is assessing your client and helping them to self-evaluate where they are in a risk spectrum because they may not have thought about it, frankly. I think two is getting a sense of the background knowledge of your clients. You know, the two guys who came out of the intelligence community, guys or girls, I should say, of course, men or women, may have a far deeper understanding of the national security apparatus and may 
have more specific, pointed, or sophisticated questions than two recent college graduates who've never done anything other than watch Homeland, and that's their vision of the national security world. <laughs> so background it's knowledge. It's not a bad show. Not a bad, not show. A bad show. Three, depending on the company, in-house capabilities really vary. I have a number of former attorneys who work for me at the NSA, for instance, who've gone in-house. So their clients have the benefit of their knowledge. And when they come with a question, it is a far different exercise than a client without any in-house lawyers who've ever been on the inside of government, whether it's in the intelligence community or the Justice Department or the Defense Department. And then I'd say the fourth area to think about of how to tailor your advice to a client is expectations. Those different types of clients I just mentioned or different prototypes of clients can have wildly varying expectations on timing of legal advice, nature of legal advice. I still have clients who want a 50-page memo and want it, you know, have a two-month time window. And I have clients who have a 30-minute time window. They don't want to leave the phone without getting the advice that they call for. And evaluating what your client wants and needs probably two separate things, but both are important. Sounds like that also requires some maturation, quite frankly. I mean, and there's certainly a lot of young lawyers that are going to come in with that will vary, but I'm sure that's the kind of thing that, that experience does. Definitely. I do like to say that the lawyers who work for me with me probably know a lot more actually about the details of the law, but only over time can you gather some sense of experience uh, to inform that knowledge. I think it would be an understatement to say that there appears to be a lot that Congress is considering right now. There's been a lot of action. Um, obviously, there have been a number of executive orders coming out of the White House, some of which I think either amplify or alter in part uh, prior executive orders. But in general, it seems like we're in a time of some change right now. What should our listeners be watching out for, you know, maybe in the coming year? Yeah, well, there's a number of discrete issues. But if, before I mention those, I think it's important to think about what are the drivers of which issues are coming to the fore, because I think that will help folks think through what are other issues that are, will come up. Uh, first, of course, is changes in technology. It's such a dynamic environment. Even just by the description of the various areas of law we, we did earlier, you can see that technology is impacting a lot of different areas of law. So changes in technology. Uh, globalization, of course, is kind of a constant theme, but you know, a very good example is data privacy and cyber issues. You have the EU uh, with its uh, different data privacy regime, the U.S. still trying to figure out where we're headed, and Asia uh, to sort of oversimplify. But as more and more clients are dealing, of course, across jurisdictions, there are going to be more and more issues that come to the fore on the policy front with respect to globalization. Third, the threat landscape, of course, is moving so fast, whether it's cyber threats or terrorist threats or others, that I think that's going to impact the issues that the Congress and the White House are going to need to deal with. And lastly, I'd say unsettled norms about the balance between security and civil liberties, which has tended to move along the pendulum. Pre-9-11, obviously post-9-11, it moved in a certain direction. I think we've seen uh, a swing back towards the civil liberties uh, end of things. And I, I don't really like that description of a continuum, but it's the sort of uh, description most people use. Wherever that balance or that reflection of d different equities lands, I think will impact the issue. So what are, what are some of those issues? The first is FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. There's a significant provision called Section 702, which is basically a statutory provision that allows the U.S. government to intercept the communications of foreign targets outside the U.S. with the assistance of U.S. companies that may collect those communications. 
And so that's up for reauthorization, and this has been a source of some controversy, so that's going to be a big issue. And to be clear, that's that's foreign-to-foreign foreign communications. We're not talking, the companies may have it here, but the communications are between two actors overseas. It certainly is yeah. the target has to be a foreign target. Now, the foreign target could be communicating with a U.S. person, and it is illegal to purposely collect the communication of a foreigner knowing that they're talking to a U.S. person with the intent of getting that U.S. entity. So Congress is looking at that again. For sure. Uh, I think CFIUS, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., and that entire legal regime is up for reevaluation, not in a sunset way, the way Section 702 is, but because people are constantly questioning the adequacy of that regime for a dynamic environment in the economy, particularly, again, on technology issues, semiconductors being the perfect example. I think another third issue area is how we think about and define as a legal matter critical infrastructure. We saw last year with the Russian hacking and so forth a debate about whether voting systems should be considered critical infrastructure. That's just one example, but I think increasingly as systems and technology connect lots of things that weren't connected before, it's going to raise questions as to what should be considered critical infrastructure. For example, I was in the government when the Sony hack happened, and I think nobody really thought about movie studios as critical infrastructure, at least on a day-to-day -day basis, but that was a very real situation where we had to think through that question. And in particular, this issue I mentioned earlier of Section 9 companies, this administration has indicated it wants to evaluate how Section 9 entities are considered and supported and dealt with in the President's executive order on cybersecurity. And can you give some context to that? What are Section, Certainly. just generally, what Section 9 Certainly. companies are? Section 9 refers to a section of Executive Order 13636, which was issued by President Obama in early, I think, February 2013. And it is a section that basically says if there is certain critical infrastructure, an attack on which could have catastrophic consequences, it should be so designated by the Department of Homeland Security. And there's a process that's classified by which certain entities have been so designated. I think in the executive order that President Trump issued just a few months ago, there is a, a call to evaluate whether those entities are getting the support they should be from the federal government, what are other requirements that should be put on them? How do we deal with Section 9 entities, basically? So this is an area clearly ripe for further development. And so you can see there's a range of topics. I'd say the last I'd mention, because it's particularly close to my practice, is cybersecurity. And an issue that is of interest to just about every client I have is the regulatory landscape when it comes to cybersecurity and how fractured it is at the moment. And there's clearly a need for greater harmonization or alignment among various sectors. So you have the FDA dealing with medical device companies in cyber. You have NHTSA dealing with car companies in cyber. You have the Federal Trade Commission dealing with companies that are consumer-facing. And it's not at all clear that the expectations of regulatory bodies are aligned, which means companies like my clients that face multiple regulators have a difficult time figuring out exactly what they should be doing. Right, and then there's the unsettled landscape of information sharing. I thought was you had something to do, if I recall correctly, with the the sharing of vulnerabilities that was a part of the act that passed in 2016. I don't know that that sharing infrastructure is is really available. And I think at this point, sector specific ISACs, meaning the information sharing and analysis centers, are largely the points of confluence until uh, something more. It is. Special. <laughs> it is. And the law you're referring to is the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. And um, that passed after many years of consideration. It provided some liability protections to companies that wanted to share 
cyber threat indicators with one another or with the government, uh, but limited liability protection. So a lot of our advice is helping companies understand what are the limits of those protections. And we represent ISACs, for example, and helping them think through what are the protections available to those organizations. I had an ISAC client recently who got a subpoena in a cyber lawsuit. So they had to think through, did they have to respond to the subpoena? What would that do to the incentives for all of their members for sharing information with them if in the context of lawsuit they had to turn that over? So there's all sorts of legal questions underneath the very high level of topics. Okay, interesting. And as we move toward an era of machine learning uh, and the algorithms start to write themselves and the robots are controlling things, you know, you, somehow you private lawyers got to wedge yourselves. You just got to <laughs> wedge yourselves in there. All right. I'd like to solicit some advice in a way for our sort of younger lawyers. I try to give this a little context. So let's say I'm some young lawyer, I'm living in Mission in San Francisco, and I'm trying to make a name for myself with a national security practice. And I advise startups. So some of my clients slash former fish buddies, PH, uh, from Cal are now venture capitalists or startups uh, chasing the idea. What should I, that lawyer sitting there, now I'm trying to keep them out of trouble. What should I be thinking about? Uh, how should I be talking to them? And how do I talk to them in a way that as they're on that adrenaline-driven uh, ride, that I can somehow inject a little reality without being the worst buzzkill they've ever had and at the same time protecting them? What are your thoughts? Well, firstly, be nice to them because they may be billionaires before any of us. <laughs> Beyond that, um, I've gotten some of my best clients through some venture capital contacts I have. And so I have worked with a lot of startup types. I'd say there's a few common themes that come out. One is helping folks who are completely driven by the task at hand of the business they're starting start to think about who are all the stakeholders they need to be thinking about as they grow this business. Things as obvious to them in some ways as a potential acquirer who not only is interested in their business model, but is going to be doing their due diligence on how effectively the governance framework is for their product or system that they've set up. In other words, if you're starting a cyber company, have you actually thought through the legal rules around under which your product can be sold, under which your product can be sold globally, etc.? So helping them think about that, one. Two, in terms of stakeholders, the government interests at stake, and is this a product that may be of interest to government customers as well as commercial customers? Is it a product that maybe primarily has commercial application, yet the government's going to be interested in it for its own purposes? Is it a product or a service that is generating information that naturally might come into play in a government investigation. So thinking about those sorts of things early. And then lastly, in terms of expectations, public expectations, because any environment that is completely mission-driven, whether it's the NSA or two-person startup, tends to be myopic in how it views the world. Because the good people focused on a mission at hand aren't sitting around all day thinking about what will the public think about what I'm doing. And so Helping to bring some of that to bear actually does have a business equity because sooner or later that business is going to be in the public eye. Mm -hmm. And I, I think entrepreneurs should be thinking about how they want to ref be reflected in the public eye. And then lastly, I just mentioned thinking globally because oftentimes folks may be developing a product or company just thinking about the U.S. market and just may not have their aperture wide enough to be thinking about legal regimes and obstacles around the world. That sure, sure. Not anticipating that they're going to scale. Exactly. Yeah. 
So what advice would you offer our young lawyers in the Young Lawyers Division that are interested in private national security law, especially in light of your comments about, you know, how beneficial government experience can be? So I'll give you the, the stereotypical three things that have served me well. The first is follow your interests. The best piece of advice I ever got was to go where the action is. So I'd been working at a law firm first year at Harvard Law School, and the managing partner wanted me to come back, and I had an opportunity to go to the Justice Department. I guess this was second summer after law school. And this was the late 90s, and it was an offer in the antitrust division, which was very active. This was under Joel Klein. The Microsoft suit was happening. This was kind of a hot place to be. So I turned down the law firm to take the role in the honors program. And, you know, I had to go tell the managing partner I was basically reneging on this uh, decision to come to the law firm. And, you know, he was so understanding about it. And he said, honestly, just Firstly, go where your interests lie, but go where the action is, and that has really served me well. The second would be don't be afraid to take chances. I was at another law firm later in my career, and honestly a little bit bored, and I was looking around for what to do, and I opened the paper one day, and I read about this thing being formed called the 9-11 Commission. And honestly, my first thought was, that looks fun. I would just love to do that, but I had no, no avenue in. So I, you know, I did what everybody does, knock on doors, and got an interview and got a job and so forth. But the people at the firm were so dismissive of the opportunity to go work for what they thought was another blue ribbon commission in D.C., which are a dime a dozen. This one turned out to be pretty well-known and had a good product and so forth. But that changed the course of my career. And it, was, it felt like a chance at the time, in retrospect. And then the last is just to encourage your folks to think about public service, which has a strategic benefit of helping you, I think, in private practice, but is good in its own right. And I would encourage folks to, to think about public service. All right. It's been really great to have you. It's a pleasure. I guess what I'd like to know is what's in your future right now? Can we be looking out for writings, books, TV appearances, other podcasts? (laughs) Other than the occasional uh, cable hit, most of my time (laughs) is spent at the firm and with my two little kids. But when and if there's time, maybe a little writing here and there. Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're trying to figure out if you should escape to the private sector where you could possibly get more sunlight exposure to tackle that pesky vitamin D deficiency you're suffering, or you think that maybe a little time in a skiff sounds pretty cool, but you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws, Then join us next time for the National Security Law Today podcast, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we hope to see you at our next conference. Remember that our fall conference is November 16th and 17th. Because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.